message this morning, which will be in John 7, if you want to begin turning there to it. To begin this morning, I want to ask you a question, and that's the question of who do you follow? What sports teams do you follow? What entertainers, celebrities do you follow? What political figures do you follow, and why? Now, I'm assuming that if you follow a sports team, it's because you find some pleasure, you find some enjoyment, some rest, some recreation in doing so. I assume you do not follow a sports team because you want to obey that sports team's manager, right? You don't follow a certain team because you want them to tell you how you have to dress and how, what, where you have to be and what you have to do. You follow them because you enjoy it, not because you want to obey that team. Likewise, if you follow a celebrity, I'm assuming you follow that celebrity not because you want that celebrity to tell you how to vote and where you should eat and drink. Though I think sometimes they try to tell us that, right? But we don't follow the celebrities because we want them to inform us of how to live. There's some type of enjoyment you get from it. Likewise, if there's a certain politician or political group you follow, I'm assuming you follow that group because not you want the, that politician to change you. You want that politician to change everyone else so they do what you do, right? You know, we, we, follow, we follow people not because we want to obey them. We follow them because we find some enjoyment in that. And if we're not careful, that mindset comes into the church and how we approach following Jesus. Following him because we don't want to go to hell. Following him because we find some enjoyment, some entertainment, makes us feel better about ourselves but not following him because we want him to speak into our life and tell us how we're to live every moment of every day. Now, that's not a new problem. We've seen it already in the Gospel of John in the first six chapters that we've seen in the last several months. We've seen people who follow Jesus because they think he's a miracle worker and they want to see more miracles. We see people follow Jesus just simply because they want food in their stomachs or because they want the Roman rule overthrown. And in each of those situations we've seen, that when Jesus does not do what they want him to do, they turn and they run very, very quickly. So this morning I want to go ahead and tell you what the main point is before we even get in the text, because I want you to be looking for this as we go through the text this morning. And that's simply this, we will not believe unless we desire to obey. We will not believe unless we desire to obey. We're going to see this morning four different groups, four different groups who do not believe in God, do not believe in Jesus specifically, and why the root of it is because it's they do not desire to obey Him. Friends, belief and obedience go hand in hand. It's what we call lordship. In fact, it's what we've just sung about in some of the songs. We've already sung in our songs as a prayer, lead me to your heart, bring me to my knees, rid me of myself. We acknowledge that God is Lord of all, that we are bowing down. What are we saying in all these things? We're submitting to him as Lord. We call this lordship. It's making Christ, making God our master, our boss, our Lord over all things. And friends, that goes hands in hand with our belief. If we do not really submit to Christ as Lord, as our boss, as our master, the one we want to tell us how to live, the one we desire to obey fully, then I'll contend there's really no salvation in the first place. So we're going to see in John chapter 7 this morning four groups that do not believe. We're actually going to try to move a little bit quicker through this chapter than we have the last few weeks, okay? We're going to try to knock out two-thirds of chapter 7 in one sermon today. So instead of giving you four weeks on um, four different groups that do not believe, we're going to try to pull all those together into one sermon day on why these four groups do not believe. And it's the same root issue in all four groups, and that's they do not desire to obey. So we come to John chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And we're going to try to, by God's grace, and me not talking too fast, get through verse 36 this morning, okay? John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he's, a, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has a learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm teaching on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. From the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not the ma- this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your living word, and I pray this day that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, and you would help us understand more of the importance of the connection between belief and obedience this day, that we might be found faithful disciples of you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, long text this morning, but a similar theme we see throughout all, all these four groups that do not believe. First of all, when is this taking place? Chapter 7, verse 1. Let's start right there. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking <coughs> to kill him. So it says after this. Now, when John uses after this, that's an indefinite period of time. We know, so it doesn't tell us, it doesn't mean like right away. We know based on the feast, order of feast, this is at least six months after what we just saw last week in chapter Six. So at least six months after every, all this teaching on the bread of life is what we come to right now. And what's important, during these six months, things have not maintained the status quo. The opposition to Jesus is growing greatly. The resistance to Jesus is growing greatly. The setting of this is in verse 2 here. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. Now the setting is this feast, this feast of booths. So we're getting into more detail of this next week. But this is a feast of thanksgiving. This is remembering God's provision 
for the Jewish people during their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. It's a reminder of God's blessings <coughs> excuse me, in the harvest. And in this setting of them, all the people going to Jerusalem for this feast, we're going to see Jesus interacting with four groups, all of whom share the common denominator, if you will, of not believing. Now, before we look at those groups, I want to show you the one verse I think explains all that we see throughout this, most of this chapter, and that's verse 17. I think it's the key to understanding why these groups do not believe, though it looks different for each group. Look back at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm teaching on my own authority. Basically, what we see here is the prerequisite to believing that Jesus really is God is a desire to do God's will, a desire to obey God. The prerequisite to be able to believe is a desire in your heart to obey, and that is lacking in all these groups we see. Let's start with Jesus' own brothers. This would be the ones that we would know based on Matthew 13 would be people like James and, jo- and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas here. These are the ones, the same boys who grew up in his house. Realize this group that does not believe are the boys who played with Jesus for much of their life, who grew up learning to work with Jesus, who sat at the same table, slept in the same room, It's him for all these years, yet failed to believe who he is. Look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What were his brothers wanting? Well, they looked at their brother and they saw the crowd shrinking. People were turning on him. Resistance was growing. So what do they do? They tell Jesus what to do. They don't believe he's really God, so they tell him what to do. They say, basically, you'll get more fame. Go to a more public place and do these works. Go show yourself in the way that the world would do it so that people will believe. They don't want to obey Jesus. They tell Jesus what, they should, what he should be doing here to gain more fame. And notice how Jesus responds to his brothers who do not believe. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, Jesus is not going to obey them. He's, he's saying, my time is not right. Now, the word here for time is not the chronological time. Think of. This is the word kairos that means opportune time, right time. He's saying the opportune time, the right time, the best time for me to go to the feast is not now. Jesus was on a divine mission. Jesus was ordering everything accordingly, and he contrasted it with them. Your time is now. His brothers were so living for themselves, were so living with a worldly perspective, it really didn't matter when they went to the feast. It didn't matter really what they did. They were living for themselves, doing what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. They were not submitting their lives in obedience to Jesus. They did not believe, ultimately because they did not want to obey. Now, is it really that different today? You know, the setting's different. Most of the issue for us is not going up to the feast or not. But I think the situation is very similar. Many people today do not believe in Jesus Because in their heart's desire, they don't really want to obey. Rather, they want to tell God what he should do. How many times have we or others we know tried to bargain with God? God, I'll believe, I'll do what you want me to do if, if you'll fix that injustice. If you'll heal that sickness. God, I'll follow if you'll just solve that financial problem. God, I'll follow if you'll fix my marriage. God, I'll do this if. And how much today do we still try to bargain with God and tell God what to do? Much like Jesus' own brothers did here. And Jesus' response to us is the same as what he told his brothers. Your time is not my time on this. I'm so- he's saying, I'm sovereign over all things. I have a divine timeline. Your job is to obey, 
to submit to me, to trust me, and let me be God. Well, that's not the only group that does not believe here. There's three other groups. And before we get to those other groups, there's some context needed because the other groups all interact with Jesus at the feast. Well, we just saw in verse 8 that Jesus said, I'm not going up to the feast. Then we come to verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, Jesus, also went up. Wait, wait, what changed here? Jesus just said in verse 8 he wasn't going to the feast. Now two verses later he's going to the feast. What's going on here? Did Jesus get it wrong? Well, no. Did John get it wrong? No. What's happening here? When Jesus says in verse 8, I'm not going, he uses the present tense. I am not going now would be a way you could translate that there. He's saying, I'm not going in your timeline. I'm not going in the way that you wanted me to go. The brothers want him to go with a grand entrance to make a big scene. He's saying, I'm not going that way and I'm not going now. I'm going to go when the Father's time is right for me. So he does go, but he goes in the middle of the feast and he goes to stand up and begin teaching, which creates these encounters with these three other groups. Now let's look at those groups and let's see about their disbelief as well. Verse 11 here, let's see Jesus interacting with the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now when John uses the word the Jews here, he's meaning the leaders. He's distinguishing them from the Jewish pilgrims who come to the festival, the Jewish residents of Jerusalem. And at the core of this group, they're not trying to obey Jesus. They're trying to kill him. Verse 1, they're trying to silence him. Why are they trying to silence him? Why do they not want to obey? Because their hearts are full of pride. They're proud. They want their way. They don't want him to challenge their ways. They don't want to submit to him. And we know from the previous chapters, their pride has been hurt. Jesus has corrected them in their traditions. He's corrected them in holding on to the traditions of men. He's challenged their ways. And we see that more fully throughout all of John, but we see a glimpse of it here in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man has learning when he has never studied? This is not a good marveling. This is a marveling because they think they're better than him. How is this uneducated man able to have such influence over the people here? They're looking down upon him. In fact, they're looking down upon him and so angry that people are listening to him. Verse 31, if many of the people believed in him, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? People's eyes are beginning to get open. In verse 32, how do the Jewish leaders respond? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Before they can arrest him because his time has not yet come, look at what Jesus says to them in verses 33 and 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, when I read his response to religious leaders, I have this weird mix in my heart between, go, Jesus, go get him, tell him how it is, with a, oh, my goodness, what did he really just say to them? And it's kind of this mix of this, because notice his words then, particularly in verse 34. He's saying this to the most religious people of the day. He's saying this to the most dedicated people of the day who've given their whole lives in, quote, unquote, the service of God. And look at what he says to them. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am you cannot come. And friends, that is incredibly sobering. This group that claims to be following after God, Jesus says, you will not find me. Where is he going? He's returning soon to the Father. He's returning to heaven. He will ascend to heaven soon. And when he gets there, he says, you will never, ever be there with me again. Verse 34, where I am, you cannot come. And their pride, they don't want to listen to him, much less obey him. And we see that they will not believe because they do not desire to obey. And friends, again, is it very different today? Again, the setting is different. But today, how much of the objections to Jesus or Jesus challenging our self-righteousness, 
Jesus challenging us and pointing out to us that we are not good people, that we are depraved in all parts of our being, that he challenges our workspace righteousness, showing us that we can't get to God on our own and ultimately reveals our pride like he did to them. And either we humble ourselves and submit to him as Lord and desire to obey, or we end up with hardened hearts, much like the Pharisees here, who continue striving in their own effort and end up far away from God, as verse 34 showed their ultimate fate was. Well, there's another group that doesn't believe here, and that's the, the pilgrim crowd. Now, when I say pilgrims, don't picture those nice little figures we put out at Thanksgiving, okay? We're talking about the pilgrims here. We're talking about the Jewish people who traveled into Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. And like the other groups, like Jesus' brothers, like the Jewish leaders, they're really not believing either. Though some we do see eventually believe, the majority do not here, again, because they, they do not want to obey Jesus. We see this in verses 19 and 20, particularly here, that they're trusting in their own religious tradition, their own religious practice, their own religious dedication, instead of obeying him. Verse 19, Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He says, has not Moses given you the law? And listen to how he directs it to them. He says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, give it to their credit, these, these, this, this Jewish pilgrims were not in Jerusalem until this point. They did not know about the plot to kill Jesus. But when Jesus speaks in the truth of what's happening, there's people trying to kill him. They don't believe. They don't even take him in his words that this is true. What they do, they mock him. They say, you have a demon. Now, if you were Jesus, how would you respond when you've just spoken truth of what's happening all around you and people start mocking you saying, this guy has a demon? Do you respond like, let me show you, you know, and kind of put him in their place? Would you want to respond with, hey, I've got evidence here for you? Well, Jesus responds very different in that. In fact, he doesn't even address their assertion that he, had, that, that he has a demon. Rather, he targets their heart, which is what Jesus does over and over again. He keeps going back to heart issues for people. And look at what he does. He, he targets their religious practices in this. Verse 21, Jesus answered them. Again, I would expect to, I don't have a demon. I'm really God, but that's not what he says. He says instead, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. From the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. And there it is, verse 24, that last, last verse. He says, do not judge by appearances. He's saying, stop judging superficially. Stop judging superficially here. It's a present imperative. That means they were continually judging him wrongly, superficially. And what were they judging him for? Back John chapter 5, remember on the way to the temple, he stopped by the pool of Bethesda and he healed a man, a lame man, on that. And he did it on the Sabbath. If you remember from chapter 5 that we looked at many weeks ago, um, that healing, that's what they're judging him for still. And they're, and they're faulting him for that. This man who had not been able to go in the temple to worship because he was an invalid, Jesus stops and heals and makes him ceremonially clean so the man can go to the temple to worship. And to show them the folly of their traditions, Jesus points out, listen... You guys circumcise boys on the eighth day after birth. And even if it's a Sabbath day, you'll break the Sabbath laws to circumcise that boy on the eighth day so that, your, so that your ceremonial laws can be upheld. And yet you fought me for making a man ceremonially, ceremonially clean to go to the temple on the same day. They're so blinded by their tradition, they cannot see him for who he is, nor can they obey him in that. Now, again, is it very different today? Again, we're not getting hung up today much on the Sabbath. But how much today are people putting their confidence, like this group, in their religious practice, their religious traditions? Well, I go to church. I give. 
you know, I never murdered. I mean, I look at WSFA at night and I see all the crime and say, I've never done any of that. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm okay because I at least do my Christian stuff on Sundays. It's very much the same mindset of this Jewish pilgrim crowd here. But the reality is, friends, the gospel calls us to go deeper. The gospel calls us to look into our hearts. The gospel calls us not just to not murder, just to go to church on Sundays. The gospel calls us to love our enemies. The gospel calls us to care for our neighbors, ourselves. The gospel calls us to go the extra mile. And the gospel calls us to be peacemakers. Yes, even in our homes and with our kids, with our spouses, we're called to be peacemakers in that. And when Jesus starts calling us to do demands of stuff that gets really hard for us, we kind of start acting like the, the crowd here. We may not say you have a demon, but we kind of act like, Jesus, you're crazy. You really can't expect me to love my spouse after all they've done. You really can't expect me, Jesus, to go the extra mile for that person after all the wrong they've done for me. And it starts coming out in things like, I'll never forgive. I'll never forget that wrong that was done. There's no way I'll ever make peace with that. There's no way I can love that bully at school. And we end up with the same attitude as a Jewish crowd, just different settings. And Jesus calls us like he called them to make right judgments because we will not believe unless we also desire to obey. Now, quickly, the last group that Jesus addresses here, and that's the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. If you want a better term for it, I call this a Jewish mob. This is the group of people who knew what the Pharisees were up to, and they understood it all. They were influenced by the Jewish religious leaders there. Look at what they, what they said in verse 25. Some of the people in, of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now, let me just pause right there. You realize this, the, 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 the pilgrim crowd has just said, you have a demon because you're asserting that people want to kill you. This group in Jerusalem people actually understand what's going on. Is not this the man that they're trying to kill? Now, verse 26. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know that, that where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, in this, they ask this question. Do the authorities know this could be the Christ? Now, that seems like a good question to us, but it's really not. Again, when we talk about translations, our English loses something here. In the Greek, when you ask a question, the answer is off, can be, the sentence can be phrased such a way that the answer is implied. Remember that when we looked at that last week, when Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away also? The answer was implied. Well, I know you don't want to, but here's your chance to confess that. Here the answer is implied as well. They're expecting a no answer. Can this really be the Christ? The question is phrased in such a way in the Greek to say, no, of course it's not. I would almost translate it in a more modern way of saying, there's no way the authorities really think this is the Christ, is it? And, of course, the answer they're expecting is, of course not. We know where he came from, which echoes back to chapter 6. If you remember in chapter 6, in verse 42, the people say, we know his father and mother. So here you once again have a group of people denying who Jesus is because they're trusting in their own intellect. They're trusting in their own understanding. And notice how Jesus replies to this group as well that does not obey, that does not believe. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he's taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He proclaimed, he cried out this, that basically you're missing the big picture. He said, God the Father is very true, very real. Again, verse 28, I love how he phrases it at the very end. He who sent me, as the Father, is true, and him you do not know. He's saying, God the Father is very real, but you don't know him, and that's why you don't believe in me. Remember, this was to the people who lived in Jerusalem, who were surrounded by the culture of the Jewish religious practice. And Jesus is saying, in all this religious activity, you are missing the Father and you are missing me as well. And again, is it any different today? There's people who live their lives around church activity, 
who are here every time the doors are open or in other churches every time the doors are open. But ultimately, when it comes down to the heart issue of the day-to-day life, there's no desire to walk with Jesus outside the walls of the church buildings. They're living in the culture of the church, but yet they're not really knowing God as seen in a transformed life. And friends, in all these groups, whether it's the brothers, the Jewish leaders, the pilgrims, the residents, none really believe because none really desire to obey. And that's the negative of all this. Let's turn it. Is there hope in this? And that's what I want us to focus on. Yes, there is hope. Look back at verse 24. We've been looking at kind of the negative warning of this, but there is a command here as well. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. Judge with right judgments. How do we have right judgments about Jesus? How can we really believe in who Jesus is? And Jesus gives us our answer back in verses 17 and 18. So jump back now to where we started, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So there our answer is in verse 17 here. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. It's an issue of belief. Now notice it does not say, if a person goes to seminary, he will know if my teaching is from God. It doesn't say, if a person grew up in church, he will know if my teaching is from God. Nor does it say, if a person has a daily quiet time every day and is at church Sunday and Wednesday and does an extra Bible study, they will know if my teaching is from God. That's not what he says here. He says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then that person will know whether the teaching is from God. You notice it doesn't say that person who desires to do God's will will be further along in the journey. Or the person who desires to do God's will will have a greater chance of believing. It doesn't say that. It's a promise here in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will certainly know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Friends, it's a hard attitude. If there is a heart attitude that desires to obey God, when they are confronted with the words of Jesus, they will know that he is true, that his words are real. A person who desires to let God be Lord over their life, when they see the words of Jesus, they know it is true. Friends, that's why we don't invite people to try Jesus and see if he works for you. Because trying Jesus is in a heart attitude of submission to him as Lord and Savior and Master over, the, over our lives. That's why we don't call people to just give them a shot. That's why we call people to repent of their sins and to make Christ the Lord master of their, all their lives. That's why we don't invite people like the old sign on I-65 used to say once you head north of the city, go to a church where the devil will get you. That's not salvation, friends. The devil's very happy for people who go to church week in and week out but have no heart desire to really obey Jesus in the mundane things of life. He's got them right where he wants them. That's why we don't tell people, just pray this prayer. Great, you pray that prayer. Congratulations, you're a believer. You're good for the rest of your life. Now go live like you want to live. And the root of this, of whether or not we really believe, which is all of what John's been about, do we believe in Jesus? And through this type of belief, this belief that changes us, this belief that is coming to him, that we've seen week after week of all the different ways to describe what this belief looks like. And verse 17 tells us that the heart of that type of true saving belief is the will to do God's will, the will to obey God. And let me remind us from what we saw in chapter 6 throughout that, that type of desire to obey God is not something you or I can muster up by enough discipline or strength or willpower on our own. The desire to obey God is something that comes from God's grace, not that we manufacture. It comes when the Father teaches it to us, when Jesus draws us, when the Spirit opens our eyes and gives us saving faith. Now, in the province of God last night at the dinner table, we were reading, and we were reading in Hebrews chapter 3, and Julia looked at me and goes, 
this is what the sermon's about tomorrow. And sure enough, it is. So don't worry, we're not going to preach the whole sermon. But I want you to see the connection. So go to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to close out with this today. Again, don't panic. We'll preach a sermon on this a whole other day. But I want you to see the connection <coughs> from the scripture this morning here. Hebrews chapter 3 is an amazing text for us that just rings true of everything we've just seen in John 7, just in a pretty succinct, concise way, because it's going to target your heart and my heart in this. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7 here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your what? Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their, in their heart. They have not known my ways. Let me just stop right there. Because in their hearts, they go astray. They have not known God or his ways. Verse 11, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Sounds a lot like what Jesus already told to the Pharisees there. Now, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving what? Heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, and indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As I said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your what? Your hearts, as in the rebellion. For those, verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And when whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that those who would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now again, look at the end of verses 18 and 19. The end of verse 18 says that these people were disobedient. And then verse 19, they were unable to enter because of, it doesn't repeat disobedient, but because of unbelief. Do you see that? Unbelief and disobedience are connected here in this text. Friends, we will not believe in Jesus if we do not also desire to obey. And so I'm going to ask you the question, where are you today? When we speak of the heart, we're talking about not your thing going lub-dub in your chest. We're talking about the seat of your emotions, your soul, who you are. In your heart today, there's only, in this room, there's only one of two, there's only two groups here. That's people whose hearts believe, and that is also coupled with a desire to obey God. Or you have an, what's described here as an evil, unbelieving heart that is full of disbelief and disobedience as well. There's only two options. There's no middle ground. It's either we have a heart that believes and desires to obey, or we have an evil, unbelieving heart that does not want to obey. Now, that unbelief takes different forms. We saw like Jesus' brothers. They did not believe because they did not want to obey, but that particularly looked like for them, they wanted to tell God what to do. The Jewish leaders did not believe because they did not want to obey, but theirs was because they wanted to work their way to salvation. They did not want to humble themselves and admit it's all of God's grace. The Jewish pilgrims did not believe because they did not want to obey, but for them, they wanted to be confident in their works and their traditions. And when Jesus challenged them beyond that, they thought he was crazy. Or the Jews in Jerusalem here, they did not believe because they did not want to obey because they thought they, thought they had God figured out with their intellect. And all those different manifestations of unbelief comes out of ultimately a heart that does not want to obey God. And those people miss out on what we're getting to next week. They miss out on the experience of living water. Friends, the only thing that will change our heart is God's grace on that. We will not believe unless we desire to obey. So I want to ask you the question, today, what is your heart? Is your heart today a heart that believes and is in an attitude of wanting to obey God? Or is today your heart a heart that disbelieves? And it doesn't matter what type of disbelief. You saw different groups with all different objections to Jesus here. 
but is that disbelief ultimately rooted in a heart that does not want to submit and obey God? Not just in this room, but if we took a, and took a, a, a film, went back through the last seven days of your life, what does it show? Is there a manifestation of God's grace at work in your life with such belief that there's also this desire to obey? And is it manifest in the way that you treated your spouse and the way you treated your kids and the way you did your work or your schoolwork and the way you obeyed the authorities and the way that you treated that person in line at Walmart and the way you drove and everything this week? Is there manifestations of a heart that desires to obey God in all things? Is there evidence of God's saving grace marked by the fruit of obedience in your life? I'm not asking about perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We all have sin in our lives. But the question is, is there a heart that desires to obey God? And when we do fall, is there conviction because we've fallen? Because we know that we're not living as God desired us to live because there's disobedience there. Is there a heart that is quick to confess that to the Lord, to confess that to those we've wronged, to repent of our sins and desire to obey again? Friends, if not... I would contend that there's not a heart desire to obey God in the mundane things of life, then there's no salvation. Because belief in a, in a desire to obey God, verse 17, are so closely linked here. The, a belief comes out of this life that is marked by wanting to submit to God as Lord. We don't trust Jesus just as Savior. We trust him as Lord. And so, friends, if your life is not marked by a desire to obey God, I would plead with you, over this holiday weekend, get on your face before the Lord and say, God, show me the state of my soul before it's too late. We saw the warning to the Pharisees that was so sobering when Jesus said to them, where I go, you will never come. Friends, we're not promised tomorrow. There is a day coming when it is too late for us. And I pray that no one who sat on the teaching of the word of God at Gateway will ever stand before the Lord and say, I, I didn't know. You've been confronted with the word of God in your Sunday school classes, in your Bible says your life groups, by your friends, and the question is, do you believe, not just intellectually believe, not just as you pray a prayer, do you walk now, but do you believe in such a way that you have a desire by God's grace to obey and make him your Lord, your boss, your master over your thought life, over your private life, over your public life, over your home life, over your work life, over everything. If not, I plead with you over this holiday, we can get on your face before the Lord and ask him to do that work in your heart because it's all of his grace. If that has happened to you, my normal challenge to you is give thanks to God, right? Because it's all his work, right? I'm going to give you a secondary challenge this week that's different than normal. So yes, do that too, okay? If, if by God's grace this week you've experienced and are experiencing today a belief that has led you to know you're not perfect, but when you've sinned to confess your sin to this week, when you realize there's things that are wrong, you quickly repent of it because you want so bad to obey the God who loves you and who made you. When you have that, yes, give him thanks. But I have one more specific challenge for you today, and that's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, the reality is God made us to need one another in community. And the reality is, in all of our lives, we've had seasons to where we've been struggling in our walk with the Lord. And if you're at a place now that God and His grace has brought you through that, and you're at a place now to where your heart desire is to obey God and submit to Him as Lord and let Him be your boss, your master over everything, if you're at that place, not only do you give thanks to God, but... Hebrews 3.13, open your eyes here, exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because in the promise of God, there's people around you whose hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is very deceitful. The enemy is very clever in trying to bring people down. And so if by God's grace you're at a place today to where your life is marked by desiring to obey God, and he's put people in your life who claim the name of Jesus whose lives are not, would you love them enough this week to reach out to them? 
We're in a culture that, that is so fearful of judging others that we're afraid to speak the truth in love into people's lives. But friends, if you know someone who claims the name of Jesus as a brother or sister in Christ, and you see their heart being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, they claim the name of Christ, but there's no repentance for whatever they're doing. You name the sin that you see in their life. Do you love them enough to Hebrews 3.13 to exhort them in love? Not in superiority, not in pride, but as one who by God's grace, God has brought you along. Can you go to them in love and point them to the hope that God has put into your heart as well? There are people all across the city who name the name of Jesus, who are ready to throw in the towel and walk away from their marriages. There's people all across the city who are exasperating their children to anger, yet they name the name of Jesus. There's people all over the city who claim the name of Jesus, but they're enslaved to pornography, enslaved to other addictions. And if in the promise of God, those people have opened up to you, and you know that, will you be faithful to point them to the grace of God as well? The grace of God that has changed you and is still changing you, and the grace of God that will enable you to walk in holiness even when it's tough in those mundane things of life. My challenge to you is not only give thanks to God for what he's done in your life, but be an instrument of God's mercy and grace in others' lives as well. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this text, even though it's probably not one I would have gone to if I was just preaching through my favorite passages. Lord, it's hard when we see verse after verse after verse of people who do not believe. I'm still thankful for it. Because, Lord, you show us and you warn us through that. Lord, I... I can't imagine these, these kids who grew up in the same household as you, Lord Jesus, and they saw you day in and day out and saw the difference, and yet their hearts were so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that they did not believe, at least at this point. And yet, Lord, what a reminder that is to us that apart from your grace intervening and opening our eyes, what hope is there for us either? And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who, I don't care if they've been to church their whole life or not, but there's never been a type of belief that has led to lordship, to submitting to Jesus as a Lord and making you Lord, their boss over all their life, the public and the private stuff. God, would you lead them today to that type of belief? Lord, for those of us who have experienced your grace and your gospel is changing us, would you remind us every day it's nothing for us to boast in? The reason we see you for who you are is not because of we're great, not because of any intellect in us. It's because you and your kindness put in us a heart that desires to obey you. That's your kindness. So may you point out to us the greatness of your grace. And may we this day worship you in awe and wonder that in your kindness you chose to reveal yourself to us and to draw us to yourself. Be Lord, with that, I pray you would remind us of the seriousness. You have called us to be your ambassadors, not just to take the gospel to the lost. You've called us to be your ambassadors to exhort one another. Father, I'm thankful for the men who've gotten in my life in the past when I've had areas of deceitfulness of sin who've spoken the truth in my life and brought me through that and challenged me through that. And God, I pray... If there's people in this room who you're putting on their heart, other believers, perhaps even other believers here at Gateway, who right now their hearts have been hardened in some area of their life by the sequence of sin, would you give them the courage and the humility and the love and the grace all together this week to in love reach out to their friend and exhort them with the gospel that's changed them as well? God, I pray as we do that, you would transform us, that you would make us more in the image of Christ, that we might better reflect your glory, that we might better point the world to you, and that we might have the hope that you've called us to have. For your glory and for our joy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?